Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Art Holes, the art in art history podcast with someone who has absolutely no qualifications to have a podcast on these topics. I'm glad to have you back. Uh, from what I've been told at moments, last episode got kind of hard to process. And I sat down to record this episode very much wanting to say that this one will be slightly less disconcerting. But I don't really know if that's 100% true, but there's only one way to find out. We are still climbing towards the summit of absolute outlandishness in this story, so let's just jump right back in. When we last left Caravaggio, he'd begun finding some level of success in Rome, and he really wasn't handling that success very well. He is entitled and unnecessarily empowered, and after he's done creating beautiful art during the day, at night he was wearing urban camouflage and going out to pick fights, threaten people with a sword, and then just outright stab people. Even for a violent time, people were noticing that Caravaggio had an extra level to him, and it was this propensity and really his lust and zeal for violence that made Mario finally have to break away and get married. Prospero and Costantino are still around. Uh, you don't just lie to the papal police on someone's behalf and then decide they're too much to handle. But Caravaggio was spending more time with friends who helped him really start to lean into the gang life in Rome in the artist quarter, those dark and narrow streets and alleys right near the Ortaccio di Repetta, the evil lady district. And I really do intend to use the word gang here. When we say gangs now, I feel like there's almost an immediate image of groups of people who are fundamentally involved in crime, rather than bougie professionals who happen to do crime as a side project or as part of their social life. Here, things were much more fluid and it was completely normalized. The distinction between nighttime gang activities and daytime highbrow professions was often non-existent. This would be like if Karen from accounting had to take a few hours off work on Thursday morning because she was up late cooking bathtub meth and jumping in a new recruit. And then at work, nobody batted an eye with that excuse because sometimes Karen had those nights. That's the artist quarter. Gangsters and artists, often a distinction without a difference. These were the type of people who, according to a writer at the time named Tommaso Garzoni, quote, They talk of nothing but killing, cutting off legs, breaking arms, smashing somebody's spine. For purpose, nothing more than to avenge the wrongs that they have taken to heart. For favor, nothing more than serving their friends by butchering enemies, unquote. Even the slightest insult could result in physical violence, and then during the day, they would just go right back to work. So let's circle back to Caravaggio's new crew. First, Orazio Gentileschi. Uh, he was also an artist, and from what I can gather, he was considered a good one. Ferdinando de' Medici was even considering taking Orazio to Florence and acting as his benefactor there. Uh, but Ferdinando ultimately decided against it when Orazio was described as having a temperament that nobody could get along with. That quote came from a colleague of Orazio's who was conducting almost a scouting report for the Duke. Orazio also had a daughter named Artemisia, whose artistic talent and story surpasses almost everybody in this series. And for anyone who heard that last name Gentileschi and recognized it, or if you know her story, I am not going to get into it at all here. She is unbelievably awesome and tragic, and she's getting her own series. And I was considering covering her next, but I'm going to hold off a bit. Uh, regardless, it feels irresponsible to relegate Artemisia Gentileschi to a footnote in somebody else's story. But her father and Caravaggio's friend, Orazio, he was a respected painter as well. Uh, maybe not a great father and overall human being, but a solid artist. Honorio Longhi, who was sort of the leader of this gang and an absolute douchebag, was also a very accomplished architect. 
And if you get confused on Orazio and Honorio moving forward, just think of Honorio as being close to ornery. That was easiest for me, and Honorio is definitely the angrier one. His father, Martino Longhi, was an architect for the Colonna family, and he was sent to Rome to be their architect in residence there. And when Honorio's father died, he was in the middle of building the Santa Maria in Valencella in Rome, which is an absolutely gorgeous church. And Honorio took over and was completing the commission, in addition to other big jobs. These are legitimately important projects historically, and he's doing great work. And he's also hooked in with the Colonnas, and that's likely how him and Caravaggio met. Honorio was not only the more violent member of the crew, but he was already looked at as the most accomplished, so naturally he took the leadership role. He had a thick strawberry blonde beard, dressed during the day in plush dark velvet, and at night put on all black urban camouflage. He would purposely walk around with his elbows pushed out, and if people bumped into him, he would start a fight with them immediately. And when people were trying to manage the narrow streets of the artist quarter, Honorio would ride around on a horse and act like an asshole while a young boy walked behind him carrying his sword. One day, Honorio walked into a cake shop, according to the court records, to buy, quote, a certain type of soft white meringue, unquote. That particular transaction ended with Honorio beating the shit out of the meringue guy. Who beats up the meringue guy? It's meringue! And finally, Honorio was a talented poet, which is a fun bit of information, and also something a reasonable person would imagine has zero impact on the rest of this series. But no, in fact, his poetry will have a serious impact on this story. And honestly, why wouldn't it? This is 500 years ago and people's interactions with each other were absurd at best, and so is this story. This is when everyone thought God was super serious about women being quiet in church and they regularly inserted pyramid-shaped furniture up people's asses. <laughs> Even now, as we are in episode five, that's what's still so hard for me to wrap my head around, how long ago this was and how different this world was. And I'm not trying to justify any of the violence or forgive it based on a, well, that's how things were argument. I just want to acknowledge it and understand that that's what we're dealing with. So for our characters, for lack of a better term, to stand head and shoulders above everybody else and be known historically as assholes, it's almost impressive. I mean, Honorio threw a confectioner a beating over some meringue, which even I don't approve of and I am extremely passionate about desserts. Maybe not meringue, that's a little overrated, but desserts generally, I kinda get it. But it's still good to show some sort of restraint. What Caravaggio had in a father figure in Del Monte, he now has in a brother figure in Honorio, even though his actual brother, Giovanni Battista, was living in Rome working for the church, and he actually tried to reach out to Caravaggio to see him because they were both living in the city and, you know, they were related. But Caravaggio would have nothing to do with him, and he wouldn't even see Giovanni Battista, and we have no idea why. But he would follow Honorio around like a puppy, a mean, talented, very violent puppy. And when Honorio would spout off and act like a jackass, Caravaggio would hang back silently, just eh, eh, and always be ready for the fight to break out. At night, all these idiots would make their way to the brothels, get hammered, and act like even bigger animals. And brothels were the center of social life for many of these artists, and to a certain extent their professional lives as well. There was a mutually beneficial arrangement between artists and sex workers that almost developed into its own economic ecosystem, which it kind of makes sense once you break it down at a transactional level. 
Sex workers were important to artists to sit as models, and this came up a few times in Picasso's origin story as well. And the transaction is pretty simple. The artists get sex that they don't have to pay for, and they get models who will sit for them, either for free or at a substantially discounted price. In exchange, the sex workers get art as a form of payment. It's a future interest in an item rather than immediate cash. And if the artists become famous, the sex workers can sell the painting, sculpture, whatever it is, and get out of the life they don't want. Everybody had poten- well, almost everybody had potential to benefit here with this arrangement. And it also meant that some of the best and most well-known sex workers would end up being the models for the best painters. Like anything else, once you establish this system, there's going to be varying degrees of how successful people were within that system. And that, of course, led to friction between sex workers who were in competition to be models for the best artists. And it also caused friction between artists who wanted the best sex workers to be their models. The church, the monarchies, everybody knew about this arrangement. They knew there were sex workers as models for the paintings they purchased. It wasn't a secret. They may not have liked it, but it's how business was done and everyone generally looked the other way. The only people who truly lost out on this transaction, as we'll come to find out, were the pimps. And they lost in this entire stream of commerce, which is okay because pimps are some of the worst human beings on the planet. They lost out on their commission for any sex that was given for free, lost out on the modeling time that was given for free, and got nothing for the art if it was sold. And worst of all, if the sex workers sold the art and left the business, they lost out on a quote-unquote employee. One fateful day, likely in 1598, uh, the exact date is unknown, maybe when the roving horde of lusty fellows of Honorio, Caravaggio, Orazio, Spada, whoever, were drunkenly running around the artist quarter, or it could have been at a fancy party at Del Monte's or some other power brokers, Caravaggio met a courtesan named Felide Melandroni. Of all the sex workers in Rome, Felide was a cut above the rest, and Caravaggio was smitten, and maybe this could be someone that would take his mind off of Mario. She also made for the perfect model. She was distinct looking for the time and absolutely beautiful, and she also had the capacity to be a vicious human being. But perhaps given her life and what it was like to be a sex worker in 1598, her viciousness wasn't necessarily justifiable but a tiny bit understandable. So let's explore for a bit. Felide Melandroni was born in Siena in 1581. Her father, Enea, died when she was young, and her mother, Cinzia, took Felide and her brother to live with her aunt, Pietra, in Rome in 1593. Felide's mom took the kids to live with her sister, who was waiting tables at a tavern in Rome with the promise of familial support and structure and also the possibility for a better life in Rome. Widows and children, not a lot of options, especially in a smaller town like Siena. So this was the right move for the remainder of the Melandronis. They traveled to Rome with the Bianchini family, who also had children of similar ages. Uh, Anna Bianchini was a year older than Felide, which I'm sure was great for them because they could entertain each other and play games on what must have been a boring 231-kilometer or 143-mile trip by carriage. When the Melandroni and Bianchini families got to Rome, they lived together in the same house on the Via dell'Armada, right near the church of Santa Caterina, Caterina being the patron saint of Siena, and this really started to feel like it could be home. Soon after they got to Rome, Felide and Anna's mothers both decided their daughters were old enough to be employed, and they were forced into being sex workers to help support themselves and the family. The two girls were first arrested for suspicion of solicitation and being out past curfew in April of 1594. 
Anna was 14 years old, and Philippe was 13. And like any job, and I hesitate to use the word job here because she was forced into it, there was a hierarchy of success and levels within a position that you aspire to. And the Renaissance really changed what the upper limits of sex work could be, because money influences everything and there was a new demand. Rich, bougie people didn't want the same sex workers as the poor, and not just literally the same, as in dukes didn't want the same sex worker that was giving hand jobs to pig farmers. They didn't even want the same concept of a sex worker as the poor. The intellectual and upper-crusty class of Europe demanded more of its sex workers, and in the 16th and 17th centuries, the subcategory of the courtesan evolved. Courtesans were considered a distinct profession than the other sex workers who were in brothels or bathhouses. They were known as la cortigiana, and the men, il cortigiano, and they were part of what was called the civilita pudinesca, which translates to, quote, whorish civility. This new upper echelon of sex workers would adopt the names of their hometowns and had cool names like Camilla da Pisa and Alessandra Fiorentina. It's bold and confident. I like it. It's marketing. It's like calling yourself Drake or Meatloaf. This new class of sex worker in Italy was full of, I mean, rock stars was not a totally absurd term to use, and artists fought to paint their portraits just as much as they competed for the best artists. These women, and there were also men, but mostly it was women, were effectively capitalists within the merchant class. It was expected of them to be able to recite poetry, speak multiple languages, including Latin and Greek, and they often played at least two musical instruments. These were the kind of sex workers that listened to music with Del Monte and Aldo Brandini and whom Renaissance poets would even write poems about. If you lived in Venice and wanted a kiss from Veronica Franco, a historically famous courtesan, she might say yes, and it would still cost you six months' wages. Six! When she was young, Veronica Franco said one time, quote, you should understand that anyone thirsting for my love must show the strictest discipline in his studies. If only my fortune had been great enough, I would have spent my whole life in libraries and shared my free time with only the most learned of men." Unquote. But she wasn't fortunate enough, and isn't that what we're really getting at here? She wasn't able to choose who she shared her time with. One of the most famous courtesans of all time was famous as a courtesan because she had no real choice beyond that, no matter how much Latin she knew or how much poetry she could recite. And with Felide Melandroni, no matter how well-known or famous she was, if she wasn't willing to throw down reverse cowgirl on some disgusting Medici cardinal nephew, where do you think she'd be? How long do you think she'd be in silk gowns and not avoiding rape in an alley behind some barber surgeons in 1598? She never had the option to just choose to be an artist like Caravaggio did and then fuck around for a bunch of years or go into the church like his brother. So eventually, when we see how much of an asshole Philippe Melandroni could be, given her position as one of the more well-known courtesans in Rome, can't you sort of understand why she'd be so violently protective of her position? How many 13-year-old girls didn't make it to that level? Is Philippe to blame, or is it the system she's forced to work in? And I'm not trying to absolve her of all of her sins, because it sounded like she could be pretty mean. 
There's also the other obstacle that we have to talk about that uh, throws a little bit of a monkey wrench in the model and artist relationship here, because sex workers were still held accountable to their pimps. And the pimps were also trying to protect courtesans' positions within the system because they benefited from the status of the women in their stable. And not just monetarily, but also by benefiting from the access to influential people and having more opportunities to be relevant historically and culturally, the, the access to power. But first and foremost, because you can't do anything else if you can't eat or have a roof over your head, this was about money, profiting off the backs of others. Pimps, by their very nature, are controlling and don't want their sex workers distracted in spending time with artists. Who cares if some artist captured your sex worker's portrait or includes her in a painting? That didn't necessarily increase her value in the immediate term, and time is money. You want her in beds of cardinal nephews, Medicis, Colonas, or maybe a future pope. So whether it was out getting drunk and carousing at the Piazza del Popolo or the Repetta district or a fancy party, Felide and Caravaggio found each other. And until the end of the 16th century, Felide will play a dominant role in Caravaggio's paintings, and her pimp isn't going to be too thrilled about this. Felide first appears in a painting in 1598, along with what is likely Anna Bianchini, in a painting called Martha and Mary Magdalene. And I want to briefly talk about Mary Magdalene and how she's treated in the Bible. Of the 12 apostles, and I'm just going off the Bible on this one, not other historical records, she was mentioned by name more often than any other. It's said that she witnessed the crucifixion, the empty tomb that was discovered after he died, and she testified to the resurrection. And she is a central character in Jesus' story, the same as any other man. She was not the unnamed woman who washed Jesus' feet in Luke chapter 7, 36 through 50, who is described only as, quote, a woman in the city. If you're going to name Mary Magdalene more times than any other apostle with something so important as the feet washing, you wouldn't just say, a woman in the city. Especially because right after that, in Luke chapter 8, she's mentioned by name. So it's not like Luke forgot her name and then literally two lines later was like, oh shit, now I remember it. She is also never described as a sex worker, merely as a sinner who repents and accepts Jesus. But if you believe in Christianity and the idea of the original sin, you believe that everybody is born a sinner for some reason, so it's a bit of a leap to jump right to prostitute. This was all a revisionist and creative interpretation of a story to fit a narrative of repentance during the Counter-Reformation, and it was fed to a people who couldn't read Latin to sight-check it for themselves, and it was a way to show that repentance is still possible for any perceived devilish life choices. So painting Mary Magdalene was as important during the Counter-Reformation as painting St. Francis. Mary Magdalene became another mascot to the church, and her sister is named in the Bible as Martha. And in Caravaggio's painting of the two sisters, Martha is counting the reasons why Mary should repent as a sex worker, and Mary is holding an orange blossom, which is a symbol of chastity and purity. The painting is seen historically as a little sloppy, and you could tell by how shoddily Martha is painted, and Felide as Mary has bug eyes and the background looks unfinished. It's, it's not Caravaggio's best work. He then paints Felide two more times, around 1598 to 1599, in a manner that is bananas for the time and maybe upset her pimp a little bit. The first of the two paintings is called Judith and Holofernes, and the tale of Judith is in the Old Testament, and it's a story about a Jewish woman who seduced an Assyrian general named Holofernes. Holofernes lets Judith into his tent so he can have sex with her, she gets him drunk, and then she cuts off his head. 
Caravaggio painting this scene was a direct shot at Michelangelo Buonarotti. This was Caravaggio taking on the man whose name he shared, and really anybody who's painted the scene before. Michelangelo's version is a fresco scene in the Sistine Chapel, and it's a head on a plate being carried by Judith and her servant. And Caravaggio's version is much more representative of the sexually oriented violence of the story, and it is clearly sadomasochistic. This painting is basically a 16th century snuff film under the guise of an Old Testament painting. From what I read, this version of the scene reflects historically much more of what you'd see in a brothel, with the velvet drapes and the way the bed is made up, rather than a tent. Felid as Judith is yanking back Holofernes' neck with a handful of hair and his live action cutting his head off with the blade midway through the neck and blood spurting everywhere. That brothel element and sexuality of the painting is further solidified because Caravaggio painted Felid as Judith in a very thin shirt and gave her erect nipples, so there's a real erotic excitement to the violence of the active beheading. And this nipple-rousing, bloody decapitation scene is set with that flash of a single-source lighting against the inky black background, which I can now see helps give the image volume now that it's a little more obvious. There's almost a three-dimensional quality to it, and you can tell these characters are filling up a space. And what's filling that space is a sex worker with erect nipples beheading somebody while an older maid with detailed wrinkles and a sun-browned face waits to put the severed head in a bag. Caravaggio is now, by a country mile, consistently painting realism way beyond everyone else, and he's gaining such a reputation that other painters are now forced to see him in this new style as legitimate competition. One of Caravaggio's contemporaries at the time, a painter named Annabelle Caracci, when he saw the painting said, quote, I don't know what to say except that it is too natural, unquote. And that was the very idea that everyone was wrestling with. Were paintings even supposed to capture realism? Should that even be the goal of painting? There was almost a sick fascination with Caravaggio's work. People knew there was a brilliance to it, but it was an approach nobody had seen before, and it was incredibly polarizing, especially because there was hard nipples all over the place. The last of this group of paintings from the end of the 16th century that Caravaggio used Felide for a model is called St. Catherine of Alexandria. This is considered to be the masterpiece of Caravaggio's early career. It combines everything we've talked about so far. The dramatic lighting contrast, the details, the plausible deniability and sexual tone, and now capturing religious icons. St. Catherine, then just regular Catherine I guess, was the daughter of the governor of Alexandria during the late 3rd and early 4th centuries. She converted to Christianity around age 14, and if you remember from episode 1, not a great time to be a Christian in Rome and at the height of the Roman Empire, or I guess a great time to be a 14-year-old girl for that matter. Catherine was said to be scholarly and a wonderful person, and she was almost thought of as a princess-type figure, and because everyone loved her, she was really good at converting people to Christianity. The emperor at the time, Maxentius, wasn't thrilled with her work converting Christians, so when Catherine was around 18, she was arrested and tortured with repeated lashes with a whip all over her body until she was just a walking open wound. When Maxentius offered to stop the torture if she married him, she said no because her spouse was Jesus and that's who was keeping her virginity. She's a, a nun, basically. And Maxentius got pissed at the rejection and sentenced Catherine to death on the wheel. And being broken on the wheel was not an awesome death. They would take a wagon wheel and smash it down on your feet and move up your legs and then switch to your arms and then your ribs. And they would break as many bones in your limbs and body as possible until it was almost like jelly. 
Then they would thread your limbs through the wheel, which often had spikes coming out the sides that would pierce your body while you hung there, and you'd be crucified that way. Not good. But Catherine was so close to Jesus that as soon as she touched the wheel, it shattered, I believe with a lightning bolt from God or something. It's unclear. So Maxentius martyred her with a sword. For early Christians, having a young girl, a famous daughter of a governor, be willing to accept horrifying torture during those tough early times for Christianity, it was a giant boost to the religion. Just like St. Francis, Catherine was a first ballot Hall of Fame saint. The scene that Caravaggio sets is both subtle and incredibly dramatic, and I guess it's not that subtle, but it's not beating you over the head like Judith and Holofernes. Felita as Catherine is wearing a rich purple, which is the color to symbolize royalty, and she's on a red cushion, and she's sitting next to the spiked wheel that was to be used to break her. But she's not just sitting next to the wheel, she's leaning into the spikes, almost longingly as if she relishes the pain that would be the tool to bring her closer to Jesus, and her face has that Mario flush from a little excitement, and her eyes are open and intense. The sword that will end up being her death is clutched in one hand almost possessively and she's sensually stroking the blade, not unlike a phallus, which was the metaphorical intent, and it has dried blood on it. In Caravaggio's depiction of Catherine, she is longing for death in order to commit herself to Jesus, only her death has a not-so-subtly-charged sexual excitement to it. We have gone from counter-reformation lusty porn, a... A 1997 Cinemax at 1am kind of porn to sadomasochistic snuff porn. As this transactional artist-model relationship between Caravaggio and Philly developed, it was clear they were spending a significant amount of time together in a very intimate setting, and at least one set of nipples were hard. And this was a relationship, even if it's not a relationship that we could perfectly define, even if we wanted to. But there were those details in his capturing of Philippe that were similar to how he saw Mario. There is one more painting that was completed around now. It's a minor painting, and it may give some insight into the connection between these two, beyond a sexual excitement. Those religious and devotional paintings, Mary Magdalene, St. Catherine, they were commissions. They were painted for other people. And granted, they were important commissions for important people within power structures, be it familial or organizational. And sure, if they went down in history, again, which they did, great. But that doesn't put food in the table for Philippe, and that doesn't get her out of her circumstances. How much Caravaggio cared for Philippe in whatever capacity he could, could be seen from a portrait of her he painted dated sometime between 1597 and 1599. It wasn't for a cardinal, it wasn't for a basilica in Rome, it was for Philippe, and of Philippe, the sex worker who lived near a cathedral named after Caravaggio's roughly two sisters, a woman thought of back then as a whore, even in the kindest terms at the top of the field, property of other people to be passed around. But the portrait Caravaggio painted for Philippe is chaste, and it almost presents her as if she were part of the aristocracy, giving her the benefit of the doubt nobody else would. This portrait of Philippe and for Philippe could, more so than rumors that could possibly die over time, create a lasting image that could alter her reputation in history. Whatever caring, attraction, even empathy Caravaggio had, he put into this painting so Philippe would have something of her own. Maybe. Let's give that explanation a strong maybe. There's also the possibility that is an overly generous interpretation and gives Caravaggio the benefit of the doubt that he might not have earned. 
And if we take away that benefit, there's another interpretation on his possible intentions, which we're going to explore next episode when this story hits peak lunacy. If historians can look back at their relationship and be at least somewhat confident there was something going on here more than just the artist-model-transactional relationship, you have to imagine her pimp saw the signs as well. We've been dancing around this topic for a bit, so let's get to Philippe's pimp. The word pimp didn't first appear until a play in 1607. Uh, the older terms were procurer or panderer, but pimp sounds worse and these are controlling and abusive people, so let's go with pimp. Philippe's pimp was a guy named Renuccio Tomasoni, the Nooch. And that certainly was not his nickname back then, but he's not leaving our story anytime soon, so it's his nickname now because it's fun to say, the Nooch! And it'll be helpful to keep track of and distinguish these idiots as they start to form into groups warrior style. Because Honorio, the Nooch, Orazio Gentileschi, Caravaggio, all these guys are slowly converging towards a difference of opinion. The Nooch was well known in Rome and came from a family of mercenaries and soldiers. And if you read or watched Game of Thrones, the Nooch is kind of like the brawn of this story. His family was connected to the Farnese dynasty and his brothers were famous soldiers and the Tomasoni family was aligned with Spain. So you can see where this divide between Caravaggio and the Nooch, both personally and politically because of the French-Spanish troubles, has a lot of wiggle room to grow. The Nooch was not a soldier, but always carried a sword, because as much as there were laws, there was the concept of selective enforcement, and that appeared to be rampant. His job was just being a pimp. That's it. And Philippe and the Nooch were having some issues. Like other pimps, the Nooch would play his sex workers off one another to force jealousy and competition to vie for his attention, and be dependent on the Nooch to market them to safer and more austere clients. One time, Philippe heard a rumor that the Nooch was with another of his sex workers named Prudenza, and Philippe suspected that Prudenza was trying to weasel in on her position within the Nooch's organizational hierarchy. Philippe wasn't taking that shit lying down at all, so she and a friend went to Prudenza's house to address Prudenza stepping out of line. But Prudenza wasn't at home because she was in bed with the Nooch, and according to Prudenza, per the court records, quote, the two accused came to look for me, and not finding me, they gave my mother several kicks and went out. This morning, I was in the house of Renuccio, who lives at the Rotunda. The said Philide, the accused, came to this house and attacked me with a knife. She came at me in every way and gave me many blows and tore off a lot of my hair. Then she left, unquote. One witness overheard Philippe screaming at Prudenza, quote, Ah, you slag, there you are. I'm going to scar you everywhere, unquote. Another witness said that after Philippe was kicked out of the house, she picked up a big rock and was still screaming at Prudenza, who was standing in the doorway, quote, You dirty whore, I wanted to stab you in the mouth, but I'll get you next time, you dirty whore. I want to cut you, unquote. What Philippe was threatening was called a sfregio, which is a facial scarring, uh, slicing someone's face open, which was a common form of revenge for a perceived slight. Sometimes a sfregio could include, for maximum effect, cutting someone's nose off. A sfregio is a potential revenge against anyone, but a facial scar could have detrimental effects on a sex worker's ability to make a living, so that was a serious threat against Prudenza. 
And as a quick reminder, Felita is still only like 19 years old at this point and has been a sex worker since she was 13. Imagine what she had to do since then to even survive until now. And not only survive, but climb to the upper tiers of sex work in Rome. You think she's going to let someone like Prudenza muscle in without fear she'd get cut? I mean, kicking the mother was a bit extra and definitely uncalled for, but you could see how she's just trying to protect her territory. Felid ultimately knew that she couldn't disrupt one of the Nooch's income streams, which is admittedly a terrible way to refer to anyone, so this attack really didn't amount to much, and everything fizzled out. No sfregio for Prudenza. So that was the status of Felita and the Nooch's relationship, both professionally and personally. And I'm not certain those are separate concepts. It is tenuous and volatile. And this new addition of Caravaggio into the mix, who, from the Nooch's perspective, probably doesn't yet have the cachet to be worth Felita's time and is just a hurdle to his making money, this will be gasoline on the fire. And speaking of Caravaggio, let's get back to him. We haven't checked on him in a bit. Just before the turn of the century, he took on a commission that would begin to elevate his status much more so publicly. Prior to this point, mostly the rich and powerful had heard of Caravaggio, and only as a genre scene painter who was talented with still life. Until an opportunity came up at the end of 1599 that would catapult him into the public's eye. I think that Del Monte knew that Caravaggio needed practice and refining before taking on more public commissions. So the musicians, St. Francis, St. Catherine, all of those were Caravaggio refining his skill and finding his voice, the thing that was going to set him apart. And now he has it, his artistic voice that he will put out to the public for acceptance or rejection. He paints near photorealistic images using dramatic single-source lighting to make his paintings seem like they are live reenactments of scenes. In that dramatic lighting style that looks like a flash in the dark, it'll eventually be called tenebrism. So if I say that word accidentally now while telling the story, it's because that's what the style is eventually called. So Caravaggio had recently completed St. Catherine of Alexandria, and Del Monte must have seen the skill and technique that modern critics see, and he decided he was ready to put himself out there as the patron and secure Caravaggio a public commission. Whatever risk was going to be taken, now was the time. This would open up Caravaggio and Del Monte to either widespread criticism or acclaim. And it just so happened to be a commission that would be fulfilled and available for the public to view in a chapel right across the street from Del Monte's palace, so there would be no hiding from the results. The Contarelli Chapel in the San Luigi de Francesi Church, and I'm sure I butchered that, had been without artwork for decades. There were countless political, bureaucratic, and management issues that caused false starts to almost every artistic project. Even Giuseppe Cesari was supposed to fresco the walls and the vaulted ceilings, but he only completed the ceiling, which he did when Caravaggio was still working in the studio. But then Cesari said he was overworked and was unable to complete the commissions. Even sculptors that were contracted were slow and couldn't deliver, and the whole situation was a mess. Del Monte seized the opportunity amidst the chaos to convince the cardinal that oversaw the chapel to commission Caravaggio to finish what Cesari couldn't, which was to cover the walls. The cardinal wanted the chapel to be dedicated to St. Matthew, who was one of the original apostles, and the contract for this commission was incredibly prescriptive and strict. The first painting was to be of St. Matthew, who was a tax collector, and it had to be a scene in a taxation office. The contract, for which Caravaggio was to be paid 400 scudi, required the painting to include, quote, 
various items pertaining to such an office, with a counter such as tax collectors use, with books and monies that have been received, unquote. The contract also said that Matthew should be in the act of rising from the table when being called by Jesus, quote, in order to follow our Lord who passes along the street with his disciples and calls him to the apostolate, or apostolate. I'm not really sure how it's pronounced, but regardless, it's a scene when Jesus walks in and gets Matthew to quit a job that prioritized money and become an apostle. The other painting prescribed in the contract was to be of equal size and be the moment St. Matthew was killed during his martyrdom, surrounded by, quote, many men, women, young and old people, and children, mostly in different attitudes of prayer and dressed according to their station and nobility, and benches, carpets, and other furnishings, most of them terrified by the event, others appalled, and still others filled with compassion." Unquote. In these moments Caravaggio was supposed to capture, they were paintings of a size, scale, and level of complexity he had never tried before. Even though Cesari painted in fresco, and that was the original plan for the walls, there was nothing in the contract that said Caravaggio couldn't paint oil on canvas, and that's what he did. The first painting, The Calling of St. Matthew, is enormous. It's about three meters by three meters, and much more complex than the previous paintings we've talked about. On the right is Jesus and St. Peter, and they're barefoot and in simple robes. And bare feet were a controversial image. People weren't supposed to show bare feet. It was only something you did if you were mired in absolute poverty and something you should be ashamed to show. So for Caravaggio to paint Jesus and St. Peter without shoes and with dirty feet, it was just short of scandalous. Not because they weren't known to be barefoot, you just weren't supposed to show it. And Jesus is pointing to a group of rich and ornately dressed men, counting coins and taxes, who look much more like sophisticated depictions of the card sharps painting, and, and Jesus is calling to Matthew. And the big question is, which one is Matthew? And that analysis has changed over the years. Some people say Matthew's identity is purposely ambiguous, and some say it's the bearded man and he's pointing to himself as if to say, who, me? But the more recent interpretation is that Matthew is the younger man on the left, the one who's counting taxes. And also, in a fulfillment of the cardinal stipulations, it almost seems like he's beginning to stand up without looking, as if the pull of Jesus was so strong that Matthew chose to go with him before even seeing the dirty feet, let alone the beard and the halo. In a living and theatrical image that brought the past to the present, Caravaggio captured from the Bible, Matthew chapter 9, quote, and as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he saith unto him, Follow me, and he arose and followed him." Unquote. Okay, great, he stuck to the script, no hard nipples, no O-faces, just the Bible. So far, so good. The second painting, The Martyrdom of St. Matthew, was a bit more of a struggle for Caravaggio. He had issues with the complexity, the scale, and the tone, but he finally painted a hectic scene with people of different ages, sexes, positions in life, and in various forms of dress showing different reactions like the contract required. And Matthew himself is on the ground, about to be killed while he was in the middle of conducting the sacrament of baptism to the converted. In the very background of the painting, peeking his head out to see what's going on with a look of sadness and regret is a self-portrait of Caravaggio. The paintings were set up on the walls of the chapel in the autumn of 1600, and they were extraordinarily public displays, and now Caravaggio's new style was freely available for everyone to see. 
which also meant that now his contemporaries and rivals would have a much greater opportunity to be critical in a much more visible way. And one of the people who came to see the St. Matthew paintings was an artist named Giovanni Baglione. And like Honorio, Felide, the Nooch, and Orazio, Baglione is a central character in this story. Baglione was a well-known painter in Rome, and he came from that later Renaissance Mannerist style. And he was one of those old guard artists, and he was much more entrenched within the organizational establishment of artists in Rome. As soon as the St. Matthew paintings were installed, Baglione came to view them with Federico Zuccaro, who was the president of the Accademia di San Luca, the art academy in Rome. According to Baglione, Zuccaro said, quote, What is all the fuss about? I don't see anything here. Unquote. And then he sneered at all the commotion of people trying to view the paintings, turned his back, and he and Baglione left. Whether the president of the Academy actually said that is unknown, but Caravaggio's paintings did go against everything the Academy stood for, and Baglioni now had a great story to go along with public paintings of Caravaggio to criticize. So this contemporary in Baglione, who will get his own nickname at the end of this episode and not from me, will become the mouthpiece for the art establishment in Rome as they fight back against this new artist who paints dirty feet. Now that Del Monte and Caravaggio have shown success with the Contarelli Chapel, Caravaggio has to know there's going to be additional important church commissions coming, which puts an even bigger target on his back, so to speak, from rivals like Baglione, who also want those commissions. So now is the time to be smart and dial back his nighttime activities. He's too high profile now, and it's just not worth the risk. His art may be incredibly divisive, but he is at this point one of the most sought-after artists in Rome. He's made it. Just keep your shit in order. But no, as the winter approached in 1600, Honorio Longhi and Caravaggio got into an argument with a mercenary on the streets, everybody pulled their swords, and Caravaggio stabbed the mercenary in the hand during the sword fight. Also, in October of 1600, Honorio and Caravaggio got into a scuffle with Honorio's brother, and there was actually a three-day investigation. But the investigation took a turn at one point, though, indicating it might not be about that isolated fight. I think what happened was, and I could be wrong, but I think a lot of the same names kept popping up, and the courts were getting concerned that these incidents weren't isolated, and they were potentially building towards something, and this arrest, which was only for a fight, was more exploratory. Specifically, they were interested in piecing together a series of incidents that had been occurring often on tennis courts. While people played tennis on these courts, you know, as designed, others used the open spaces with few onlookers as a good place to fence. And both activities, given everybody's aggressive attitudes, would often result in giant brawls and full-blown sword fights. What initially was just an arrest of one half of two idiot brothers with a history of fighting and lawsuits over estate and money issues turned quickly to questions about a pattern of brawls. The courts grilled Honorio to find out who was present for these street fights, which they were 100% in the right to do, because Honorio himself caused one of the brawls in the Via della Scrofa, right by the Repetta, the evil lady garden. According to Honorio's testimony to the court, quote, Sir, I was walking down the street with some friends of mine. We were talking among ourselves, and I said to them that testicles were one for a penny. Someone happened to be passing, accompanied by a certain painter whom I didn't know at all. He took it as meant for himself, and told me not to speak to him like that, saying that he ate testicles like me fried. We went at each other with our fists, then I went off on my own business. Unquote. 
The court magistrate also wanted to know if Caravaggio was there, which he was, and they wanted to know if he was carrying a sword, which Honorio said he wasn't because Caravaggio's sword was carried by a boy, but the boy never took the sword out. So the investigators know who the known associates are, and then the court took a left turn and brought up a name unexpectedly, the Nooch. They asked if Honorio ever had an argument with Renuccio Tomassoni because the Nooch was friends with Honorio's brother. Honorio said he was familiar with the Nooch and that they were on friendly terms and he never had any quarrels with him. And that was really it. Nothing else came from these incidents and everybody was free to go. So Bullet dodged. I mean, this was really lucky and it's best that Caravaggio learn from this and keep his head down. But that's obviously not going to happen. And on the night of November 19th, 1600, an art student named Flavio was returning from the San Luca Art Academy. And when he got to the Via della Scrofa, according to his testimony, quote, I was knocking at the candlemaker's door to get some candles. The defendant came up with a stick and began to beat me. He gave me a good many blows. I defended myself as best I could, shouting, Ah, traitor, is that a way to act? And then Michelangelo drew his sword and made a thrust at me in which he made a gash, and then he fled, unquote. So Caravaggio just laid in wait and attacked this young art student from behind. It was a premeditated attack, and nothing about the attack in a vacuum explained why it happened. But as these violent acts pile up, we'll eventually talk about a pattern and tie some of these things together. But for this attack, obviously nothing came from it. Uh, maybe Del Monte stepped in, maybe there was no evidence besides Flavio's testimony, but having no charges brought was perfect timing because Caravaggio received another very public commission. He signed a contract with Tiberio Carassi to paint two paintings for the Chapel of the Assumption, similar to his last chapel contract. But Carassi was a bigger deal. He was the treasurer general to Pope Clement VIII, the Pope who thought Castrati had angel voices, so this was a high-stakes commission. And not only that, but the subject matter that he was supposed to paint would put Caravaggio on a collision course historically with the artist whose name he shares, Michelangelo. Caravaggio was to paint the conversion of St. Paul and the martyrdom of St. Peter. St. Peter was one of the apostles and that first pope who was crucified in Rome upside down under Emperor Nero. And according to Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said Peter was the rock on which the church would be built. St. Paul was famous for his conversion story, which was he was riding on a horse to Damascus just as some random guy. And then the resurrected Jesus appeared to him and he fell to the ground and he was blind for three days. And then he became a devout missionary until he was decapitated under Nero's orders. So because both saints were thought to be martyred on the same day in Rome and under similar circumstances, and their heads were both preserved in St. John's Lateran and bodies both buried under the altar at St. Peter's, they're often thought of together. And the last artist who dominated this depiction of these two saints together was Michelangelo Bonarotti. So this was an incredibly important and stressful commission for Caravaggio, and he struggled. And he struggled not just with the significance and where this would put him in history, but because the paintings were to be completed on cypress wood panels, not canvas. And I guess oil paint doesn't penetrate the panel as much, so there would be a little bit different of a process that I don't really understand. His first attempt at the conversion of St. Paul was rejected by Carassi. It was a jumbled mess, and it was too close in concept to Michelangelo's, which had a lot of stuff going on, and it, it just wasn't Caravaggio's style. In his next attempt, and with these two paintings together, he really leans into the technique that looks like it's a, a lightning strike in the pitch black and went for pure rawness of emotion and simplicity. 
The final conversion of St. Paul painting is true to the actual story as written. It's a young man dressed like an average Roman, and he's just been knocked off his horse by a light from above, reflecting the presence of the resurrected Jesus that's enveloping him, and his eyes are closed and he's reaching out to God. And his servant is trying to calm the horse, but it's not an expensive thoroughbred, it's just the horse of the average person back then. It's a, it's a horse any Catholic would recognize or have, and it connects St. Paul and the story to every Catholic. It's a celebration of the average person and the poverty of the servant who's also there, and there's nobody rich or powerful in this painting. It's just, it's two guys on the road to Damascus, and that's it, and it's all in this inky black background. The other painting, The Crucifixion of St. Peter, it's, it's a very real image of an old man being crucified upside down. It's very disturbing, and it, it looks like a photograph that was taken in a dark room with the flash being the only illumination. And St. Peter is mid-crucifixion, upside down as he demanded, and everybody has filthy, filthy feet, which highlights the idea of poverty and forces the viewer at the time to acknowledge the lowliness of the people involved. It brought the past to the present and also brought Catholicism to the poor. If his prior paintings were counter-reformation gasms, these two paintings are tantric, sting-style, hold it for 36 hours and then let it go counter-reformation gasms. The church asked for art to be real and to make it present, but they never knew this is what they were actually asking for. And if you look at the two paintings and compare them to the altarpiece painting in the chapel, which was completed by Annabel Caracci, the guy from earlier who hated Caravaggio's work, you really get a sense as to how far he was from mannerism and Renaissance styles. After these paintings were completed, Caravaggio moved out of Del Monte's home and into the house of Cardinal Girolamo Mattei, and nothing happened with Del Monte that we know of. It was just time to move on. He lived with Mattei from 1601 through 1603, and he completed a number of paintings there which were variations on a theme of the stark contrast of light and dark and severely realistic portrayals of religious scenes. There's the Supper at Emmaus in 1602, which was Caravaggio's version of the meal shared by Jesus and a few of his followers after he was resurrected. And then there was his version of St. John the Baptist, which was a painting he also completed in 1602, and this is when it gets a little porny again. It was traditional to show St. John in a rustic, almost outdoorsy setting, because John lived in the woods and there was also a bunch of stuff about animals. Caravaggio does that here, but St. John is a very young man and is completely naked with his legs spread open and a giant grin in his face, hugging a ram. This interpretation was so shocking and scandalous that people didn't actually think it was a representation of St. John. The model for this painting is a young man named Chico, who was Caravaggio's studio assistant at the time, but the way he's portrayed here, maybe Chico was a little something more than that, but we'll get to Chico in a few minutes. Caravaggio also stepped up his graphic realism theme in 1602 when he painted The Incredulity of St. Thomas, the event in the Bible that gave us the term Doubting Thomas. When Thomas, one of the apostles, heard from the others that Jesus came back from the dead, he called bullshit. This was the original picture. It didn't happen. From John chapter 20, quote, Except I shall see in his hand the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Unquote. Eight days later, Jesus rolls up to Thomas, who was freaking out, and told Thomas to touch him and said, quote, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. Because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen me, and yet have believed. Unquote. 
So a bit of a swipe at Thomas and an encouragement of others to have faith, not just believe based on evidence. True to form, Caravaggio's depiction of that scene is of Thomas just two knuckles deep into Jesus' side, guided by his hand, and everybody has this surprised and astonished look on their faces. They were either astonished at seeing the resurrected Jesus, or they were showing concern at how obviously dirty Thomas's fingernails were and the possibility of infection. I mean, he's really getting in there. But either way, the spearhole fingering, the detail with which the emotion of Thomas and the others is displayed, even if people were a little grossed out, it was a very compelling image. Both of those devotional paintings, The Incredulity of St. Thomas and Supper at Emmaus, were commissioned by a banker and aristocrat named Vincenzo Giustiniani, likely related to one of the guys who may have given Caravaggio the wound that sent him to the barber surgeon Luca from last episode. Vincenzo Giustiniani was a believer in what Caravaggio was doing with the religious art, but he also commissioned one more painting in 1602 that stood in stark contrast to the devotional paintings over the past few years, and it's a painting that will cause quite a few problems for Caravaggio. It's a painting that's also freaking hilarious. It's called Omnia Vincita Mor, which translates to Love Conquers All, and it's a painting of Cupid. Well, in summary, it's a painting of Cupid. In actuality, it's a photorealistic image of a starkly naked boy with a giant grin on his face, and he's sitting halfway, standing halfway, and his legs are spread wide open. This was a tongue-in-cheek painting that was unapologetically sexually suggestive, and it was given to Giustiniani likely as a wedding present for someone in their family. The clear and overt sexual nature of this painting was fine in theory, and people were allowed to enjoy it without getting in trouble because it wasn't a profane religious image, and they could look at it and think, well, of course angels and cupids would be the beings that would be naked, and Cupid was the god of love and sexuality, so it also allowed Catholics to laugh at the silly beliefs of the gods of antiquity. So with all that moral licensing, no one really questioned who the model was and why it looked so much like John the Baptist with that same erotic grin. Chico's grin, Caravaggio studio assistant. Just like with Mario and likely Philippe Melandroni, Caravaggio was again using his art to show how familiar he was with the romantic faces of his lovers. But Giovanni Baglione, Caravaggio's now most ardent critic, he noticed who the model was and he hated Omnia Vincita more, and he hated that Caravaggio was able to be so flagrant about his sexuality in his paintings. He was furious that the church, the aristocracy, that everybody allowed themselves to be tricked into loving Caravaggio's bold new style that Baglioni felt was cheapening art and was a threat to the true meaning of being an artist, and also, let's be honest, his own legacy and livelihood. Baglioni decided that as a self-appointed protector of the, the true meaning of painting, he needed to respond to Omnia Vincita more with his own painting. Baglioni was going to use his art as a way to attack Caravaggio, and he did so aggressively and publicly. This was an art battle. It's, it's art Thunderdome. Two men enter, one man leaves. On October 29, 1602, Baglione brought a piece of art to show off at the San Giovanni Decolato Art Exhibition, which was a yearly exhibition. Caravaggio wasn't showing any paintings, but Orazio Gentileschi was, so Caravaggio came to support him. And it was there that Caravaggio and Orazio saw a painting that was called Divine Love Overcoming Earthly Love, The World, The Flesh, and The Devil, 
by Giovanni Baglione. The painting is of an avenging angel standing over a nude and flushed-faced Cupid in a devil that was a cartoonish caricature of Caravaggio, with the implication being clear. The angel is a righteous, pious cockblock on a mission from God. This angel was smiting the devil for engaging in sodomy with Cupid, and in a not-so-subtle jab and a bit of a knife twist, Baglione even used Caravaggio's lighting style. This was no joke. Baglioni was bringing out the big guns. He was publicly declaring at the art exposition, through this painting, a, a counter-reformation art slam, that Caravaggio was having sex with his assistant, Chico. Oh! To make matters even worse, Baglione gave the painting to Vincenzo Giustiani's brother, who accepted it and in return gave Baglione a gold chain, and a gold chain was a reward given to painters to show that they were considered masters. Caravaggio didn't have a gold chain yet, which irked the shit out of him, and now Baglione has one for this painting? Baglione is winning right now. It's time to back off. Maybe now is the moment when somebody will show even a modicum of restraint. Nope, it didn't stop there. Baglione, now emboldened, continued to openly tell people that Caravaggio was engaging in sodomy with Chico, and he would call Chico a bardasa, which was a Turkish slang word for a dedicated bottom. Again, it's absurd that that's even a slight against a person, and for the sake of my sanity, we're just going to assume that Chico was somewhat of age. But back then, accusing someone of sodomy wasn't just a slight. It was accusing Caravaggio of a capital crime. You could be put to death for engaging in anything other than heteronormative sex, even though it felt like everybody was having sex with everybody else. It was highly unlikely that anybody would ever investigate Caravaggio for having sex with Chico, but this was an attempt to besmirch his name and his work. And if we know anything about Caravaggio at this point, we know this was an attack that would not go unpunished, especially because Baglione was given a gold chain for the painting, something that Caravaggio greatly coveted. The rest of 1602 came and went, without Caravaggio exacting his revenge, but he was only waiting for the right time. It wasn't until 1603, right after Baglione unveiled what was supposed to be a monumental painting, that it happened. What was supposed to be Baglione's grand achievement was absolutely panned by critics. This was a major, career-decimating moment for Baglione. He was not going to be the next Michelangelo. At this perfect moment, this time when Baglione was at his weakest professionally, Caravaggio, or somebody else who was good at poetry, struck. That spring, right after Easter, two poems began to circulate around the artist's quarter that went viral 1600-style. Those poems were an attack on Baglione, but also his best friend, Tommaso Cellini, a still-life painter who everybody called Mao. And these Baglione and Mao poems were not only spread throughout the artist's quarter, but people would have spontaneous recitals of them in public. It became kind of like an open-mic poetry slam. The first poem, which I'm sure sounds prettier in Italian, quote, You don't even know that your paintings are mere woman's work. I want to see you won't earn a counterfeit penny from them. Because with as much canvas as it would take to make yourself a pair of breeches, you can show everyone what shit is. Therefore, take your drawings and cartoons that you have made to Andrea the grocer's shop. And as a quick parenthetical, that meant so the grocer Andrea could wrap fruit and vegetables with Baglione's art. 
or wipe your ass with them, or stuff them up the cunt of Mao's wife, because he isn't fucking her anymore with his donkey cock. No parenthetical explanation needed there. Pray pardon me, painter, if I do not worship you, because you don't merit that chain you wear around your neck and your paintings deserve only vituperation. Unquote. The poem was dedicated not to Giovanni Baglione, but to John Baggage, and Baggage back then was slang for someone who exists not as a person, but only as an object that takes up space, like a piece of luggage. So by calling him John Baggage, he was saying that Baglione was just an inanimate object. It's an inanimate fucking object. You're an inanimate fucking object! The second poem is longer and honestly not quite as interesting, but the first line identified the subject of the poem, and it wasn't to Giovanni Baglione, but rather to another nickname which spread throughout Rome. Johnny Testicle. Pow. You cannot make this stuff up. This is absolutely ludicrous. Johnny Testicle. And at Johnny Testicle's weakest moment professionally, he was turned into an absolute laughingstock. But backing somebody like Johnny Testicle into a corner and turning him into a joke was dangerous, because even though he wasn't as good of a painter as Caravaggio, he was still influential enough to turn this into a problem. Of all the stabbings, the brawls, the hitting that art student with a stick and then stabbing him, that potential murder, Caravaggio finally stepped over a line the church couldn't overlook at a time where dissent and perceived lies were seen as an existential threat to the city and the organization. So when Mao and Johnny Testicle filed charges of criminal libel and defamation against Honorio, Caravaggio, Orazio, and some poor bastard named Filippo who got caught in the crossfire, Everybody was arrested by the Spiri, and they were to be put on full criminal trial. In the grand spirit and storied history of selective enforcement and misplaced priorities, you could stab someone and not be held accountable with almost shocking ease. But you couldn't just walk around and say someone's art sucks and call them a testicle that exists only to take up space. The potential punishment for criminal libel in Rome was a life sentence in the papal galleys, which was such an awful place that many people sentenced to be in prison there requested to be beheaded instead. So that's where we're headed. I'm not sure if you imagine this is where we'd be, but next episode we are having a full testicle-based trial that includes forensic evidence. And I don't want to spoil anything, but that is going to be the second craziest testicle-related thing in episode 6. Next episode is going to be lunacy, and it's when this whole story gets blown open. I am very excited. That's it for this episode. Uh, if you're enjoying the story so far, please head to the Apple Podcast icon. It's the uh, the purple icon that looks like if it were multiple primary colors, it would be a, a sign at a Montessori preschool where they might not inoculate the kids. Uh, I don't know. I'll keep thinking of dumb shit for this. Uh, Instagram is Artholes Podcast. Email is artholespodcast at gmail.com. And I don't use Twitter because it's Twitter. And honestly, I don't really know how anyway. Uh, that's it. I will talk to everybody soon and take care.
cantilla negra, no te llegamos los sequitillos. Mantella, rebocito, confite, curuba, carne, y le cura a 